You are listening to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Sevierville, where our mission is helping people move from their point of need to hope in Christ. For more information about our church, head on over to severe.church. Today's sermon, The Signs of His Coming, is part one of the series, Begin with the End in Mind, shared by Senior Pastor Dan Spencer. Well, amen. Wow. Boy, that was so good. Pastor Scott, you about sung me to death there. Uh, I don't know if I have voice enough to preach now. Wonderful, wonderful. Love singing that truth and singing it with you. Uh, Let me ask you to please find in your Bible Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. And uh, how's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, crazy times we're living in, right? Now more than ever, we need the truth of God's Word to encourage us, and to guide our lives. And so I'm glad you're here and, uh, and that we're going to share this time together. Uh, this morning as we begin something new, I want to uh, sort of touch base with where we have been this year in the first two weeks. Where we're going and, and connect those two together. So uh, in the first two weeks of this year, we were in Matthew chapter 23 where we find the text of the last public sermon that Jesus ever preached. And in that sermon, he's there on the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem, the the center, the focus of Judaism, and he's preaching really to the Jewish leadership. And it's harsh. I'm telling you, he blasted them for their hypocrisy. Uh, I don't think you'll find harsher words anywhere in the Bible that Jesus said to anybody than right here in chapter 23. And then in, uh, and yet, though it was harsh, the last few verses of that chapter uh, really tell us the heart of Jesus as he was saying those hard things. And, uh, and the truth is his heart was breaking. And so uh, let's just read that uh, to get our bearings today. Verse 37 Jesus said to these uh, leaders of the Jewish people, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so we find here Jesus uh, was heartbroken as he was calling them out Because he said, uh, using that image of a hen and her chicks, he said, look, I wanted to do what a hen does when she spreads her wings to cover them and to rescue them and to give them a place of safety because she loves those little ones. I wanted to do that to you, but look at the end of verse 37. He said, but you were not willing. You turned your back on me. I tried to love you. You didn't love me back. And then in verse uh, 38, uh, this is a strange thing, he says. He said, see, your house is left to you desolate. And so here's what happens. Jesus is in the temple, the, the center of Judaism, and he walks out of there at this point, and he says, I'm leaving this place desolate. 
uh, meaning uninhabited. I think his meaning was, uh, from this point on, this place is not inhabited by God. So Jesus walks out on it, and since that time, the Jewish religion has been devoid of Jesus, and because of that, it's desolate. And the glory of God, when Jesus walked out of the temple, the glory of God departed from the temple and has not been there since. So Jesus proclaims desolation on those who have rejected him. And yet, in verse 39, we see a little silver lining around that dark cloud because that desolation will not be final. Look what he says. He said, for I say to you, you shall see me no more Till you say, so he's looking forward, till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jesus is pointing ahead in time to a, a time when the hearts of the Jewish people are going to be softened and they will turn to him and say to Jesus as their Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we have confidence knowing that, that Jesus, there, a day is coming that Jesus is going to return in glory to the earth. Every eye will see him. Every knee will bow to him. And so Jesus is pointing his disciples to the future and he begins to teach them about his plan for what is to come. And Jesus calls it the end. The end. We're going to learn about the end from what Jesus told his disciples in chapter 24 and chapter 25. And I'm calling this series of sermons, Begin with the End in Mind. I think it's good for us to begin this year by thinking about what does God have in store for the end, for the future. And, and as we get some clarity on that, I think it's really going to give us clarity in living in the present and, and, and helping us to determine what's really important and what is not. So we're going to begin this year with the end in mind. I think also as Jesus prepared just three days from that point to go to the cross and to die for our sins and be buried and rise again 40 days later to ascend up into heaven, I think Jesus is preparing his disciples for their mission on the earth as they share the gospel and fulfill the great commission and begin the church. He wanted them to begin their ministry with the end in mind. So begin with the end in mind. You may be familiar with that phrase. I borrowed it from uh, Stephen Covey, his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This is one of his habits. He said, what you need to do is decide how do you want your life to look at the end. And, and he, he even says in the book, envision your funeral. And think about what do I want people to say about me at my funeral? What do I want, want my family to say? What, what do I want my friends to say? Uh, my employer to say? At the end of my life and picture that. Uh, these people are talking about you. How did you live? What did you accomplish? And he said, what you need to do then is decide how you want it to look in the end and then sort of reverse engineer that and develop a plan to make that kind of life happen. And, uh, and that's helpful, I guess. But as Christians, we do it differently, don't we? As Christians, 
We look at what Jesus has already decided about the end. And and that guides our priorities in the present. It gives us hope in the present and helps us to live with greater clarity in the present. And uh, so that being said, there are a couple of different ways that people in the world look at the future. Most of the world sees the future as something that is unknown and unknowable. And, and the future is uncertain and the possibilities are endless because nobody's in control. So nobody knows how this thing is going to turn out. Much of the world lives with that idea of the future, that we're sort of on this dirt clod out in space and it's out of control and how history is going to turn out is anybody's guess. And if you hold that view, I'm going to tell you, you're going to live a life of anxiety and confusion and desperation in 2023. The alternative is what the Bible teaches, and that is that the future is ruled and controlled by God. And the fact that God has a plan that is unfolding under his sovereign direction, God has a destination in mind for where all of this is going in the future. And here's the thing. If you hold that view of the future, you're going to sleep better this year. And, and you're going to be able to just rest in God's sovereignty. You're going to be able to live in the present with less anxiety and more clarity. How does that sound? All right, well, let's get after it in chapter 24, verse 1. Chapter 24, verse 1. The Bible says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. So he's preached this sermon. He's made this declaration. He's walked out. And his disciples, this sounds very random, they came up and showed him the buildings of the temple. Uh, Now, Jesus is going out to be alone with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. He's going to leave the city of Jerusalem, go down the Kidron Valley, back up on the Mount of Olives. And they're, and they're, they're going to be looking back on the city. And, uh, and just sort of randomly, the disciples began to point out the buildings of the temple. And um, I got to tell you, they were impressive. By all historical accounts, they were very impressive. The temple itself was breathtakingly beautiful. It was an architect's dream. And then on top of that, the construction of the the temple mount that it sat on was amazing. It it was uh, so uh, ingenious the way they put this together that 2,000 years later, we're still wondering exactly how they were able to pull it off with such precision because some of the stones that made up the retaining walls on that temple mount were 40 feet long, 12 feet wide, and they weighed 100 tons. And, and somehow they quarried that, those stones, got them up the mountain, put them in perfect place. Uh, and you can still see them today. You ought to Google uh, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall in Jerusalem. It's some of the original stones there. Uh, so Jesus uh, is listening to his disciples go on and on about the temple, how beautiful it is, how impressive it is. 
And, uh, and they must have thought, Jesus, how can you walk out on something like that? How can you say, I'm leaving this place desolate? But he did. Because that's a place where Jesus should have been glorified, and yet he was rejected. Well, there were some that accepted him, but from the top down, from the leadership down, most of them rejected him. And in fact, three days from that moment, they would call for his crucifixion and, and they would put him on the cross. So in the place where the leaders of the Jewish people should have taught those people to love Jesus and accept him as their Messiah, he was, for the most part, hated and eventually killed. And so Jesus makes this shocking statement in verse 2. Uh, he says do you, to his disciples, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, what Jesus knew that his disciples did not know is that uh, several years later, that beautiful temple and that complex would be destroyed when the Romans came in in 70 A.D. and sacked Jerusalem. And just like Jesus predicted, not one stone of the temple was left on another. In fact, when the Romans were destroying the city uh, and the temple was set on fire, history tells us some of the gold articles of the temple uh, melted into the cracks of the stone. And, And so the greedy Romans took that building apart to make sure they got to all that gold. Not one stone was left on another. Now, for those disciples, that prophecy must have been hard to hear uh, because in the minds of the Jewish people, uh, they loved the temple because the temple was evidence of God's blessing on them. The temple was uh, a symbol of God's presence. They thought, look, as long as the temple is there, then God is with us and God is on our side and we're going to be okay. And so for them to hear, no, this thing is coming down and then what will you have? It must have been a shock to hear. And so they thought about it and then in verse 3, the Bible says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. So that's really three questions, right? Question number one, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When when is this going to happen? Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, the Jews understood that the Messiah, when he presented himself to the nation of Israel... It would be in a dramatic, glorious way. They thought it was going to happen all at once. So they said, what will be the sign, the signal that you're about to do that? And then the third question was, what will be the sign of the end of the world, the end of the age? Now, as I understand chapter 24 and 25, uh, Jesus did not answer the first question about when is the temple going to be destroyed? But he did answer the other two questions about uh, the, the 
appearance of the Messiah, and uh, the end of the world. And so let's read the first section of his answer, and I'll give an introduction then uh, to the rest of it. Okay, but let's just read verses 4 through 14. And uh, hey, look at me. This is hardcore, all right? We're jumping in the deep end, y'all. And so put on your spiritual floaties and let's go. Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, and by the way, this is uh, one of, it's known as one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret and to preach. And so I'll do my best. You pray for me. Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now put your finger on the word sorrows. Many of the women in this room have experienced sorrows because the word Jesus chose there is the word in his language that meant labor pains, birth pains. Verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, this is heavy stuff. Let me give you a few points of clarification uh, as we uh, take it apart. Uh, First of all, there are, I just need to tell you, there are a couple of main ways that traditionally uh, people have understood what we just read and the rest of chapter 24. All right? One way is that uh, some people think all of chapter 24 has already been fulfilled. It's all been fulfilled back in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And that's what this chapter is talking about uh, that's called uh, preterism, which means it's in the past. Okay? So this is not prophecy for us. This has already happened. Some people have that view. The other view, this is the one that I hold to, is that all of chapter 24 is yet to be fulfilled in the future. Uh, this is called the futurist view. And uh, I, I think there may be some things here that are similar to what happened uh, that led up to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But generally, I believe chapter 24 is talking about the future, and so it has not yet been fulfilled. This is prophecy, and we ought to read it that way. At least that's the way I see it. Okay? So I want to approach this humbly because some very wise and godly people, smarter than me, interpret it differently. And so... Uh, I may be wrong. I don't think so, but I may be wrong. 
I do think it's good for us to hold on loosely to the things in Bible prophecy that aren't super clear. But then hold on tightly to those things like an anchor for our souls to those things that are clear. And and we need to focus on that. That's what I'm going to try to do in the next few weeks. Another thing to think about here as we read this is that the disciples asked in verse 3 about the end of the age. When is the end of the age? And uh, those words, the end, in their language is ta-telos. The word telos, T-E-L-O-S. Jesus repeats that in verse 6 when he said the end is not yet. Same thing in verse 13. Jesus said, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Verse 14, he says, then the end, tatelos, will come. And when Jesus used those words, I believe that's a reference to the series of events at the end of human history as we know it when Jesus returns in his second coming. At that time, uh, there will be a great ending And that is the era of humanity's sin and rebellion against God is going to end. And Jesus will usher in then a new era of righteousness and peace under him as king. And that's going to begin. So I believe this is what Jesus is talking about. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus called it the day of the Lord or the days of the Lord. Uh, We often simply call it the end times. And I think that's a good way to talk about it. Uh, and then finally, uh, the disciples asked for what? They asked for the sign. What is the sign or the signal, uh, the indication that can't be missed that all this is about to happen, that the end is near? And, uh, and so Jesus didn't give them just a sign. He gave them multiple signs, and I want to, uh, there are different ways to categorize them. Uh, I've, I've broken it down into six signs of his coming, okay? So let's talk about this. We just read it, and the way Jesus presents these signs, they come in a certain order. I think that's important. He says this happens, then this, then this, then this. So they come in a certain order, and it seems that the deeper we get into the list of these signs that those end time events are near, they intensify. Remember in verse 8, Jesus compares it to labor pains before a baby is born. Uh, So uh, couples in this room who have gone through that experience, you know just before that baby is born, the contractions begin, and that's normally the moment where husbands freak out a little bit. All right, we start cranking the car and, and throwing suitcases in the trunk and peel out of the driveway and forget our wife in the living room. And, and we freak out a little bit. The wives tend to have more uh, control in that moment. This is what they've been waiting for. It's natural, normal, but it's a little scary. And, and you know, when those contractions start, that this baby is coming. Uh, they become more intense and closer together, right? More intense, closer together until the baby appears. In the same way, the signs connected to the return of Jesus, it seems that they're going to increase and build up 
leading up to just uh, an eruption of catastrophic events that comprise the second coming of Christ. And then Jesus will appear. Uh, So uh, the truth is, in the last 2,000 years, history has seen many of these signs uh, before. Uh, But when the end is near, like those labor pains, they're going to come in this order and it seems they will intensify in a way the world has never seen. And so here are those six signs. I'll just talk about them quickly. Number one, uh, Jesus mentioned in in verses four and five, widespread deception. Widespread deception. Deception. He said, many are going to come and say, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the one who can save you. Believe in me. Really, they're just going to be after uh, power and money. And uh, again, in verse 11, Jesus brings this up. Uh, Apparently, the closer we get to that time of the end, these religious figures are going to come claiming to teach truth. But in fact, they are liars. False messiahs with evil motives who claim to be the Christ. They claim to be the one uh, that uh, you need to believe in who will save you. False teachers will come confusing desperate people and leading many astray. And uh, here's the thing. We've seen that before. But Jesus is talking about a widespread deception on a scale that the world has never seen. And he mentions this three times in this chapter. I think he wanted us to really remember it. In fact, in verse 4, he said, guard yourself. You, you ought to, everything you hear that sounds spiritual, you ought, to, you ought to filter that through the Word of God, including what the leaders of this church say. And if it doesn't fit into God's Word, uh, you need to run like the wind or run me off. Number two Uh, Jesus mentions the sign of multiple wars. In verses 6 and 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, wars and rumors of wars. Jesus is uh, referring here evidently to fighting and disputes and protests and internal conflict like we've seen recently in our own nation. Uh, I think he also probably includes government overthrows like we've recently seen in Brazil just last week. Uh, He must be referring also to regional disputes throughout the world, like we see on the Korean Peninsula and and between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, And added to that, as it gets increasingly worse, uh, certainly we're going to see the superpowers come into play, like China, Russia, the United States, Uh, on high alert at DEFCON 4 and nuclear threats and even attacking each other, it's going to be a time of war like we've never seen before. Sign number three is natural disasters. Jesus said this in verse 7, there'll be famines, earthquakes, maybe pandemics, other natural disasters that cause death and misery throughout the world. And again, we've seen all that before. But it seems Jesus is describing something that's going to be increasingly much worse. Sign number four is severe persecution against Christians and the church. We find this in verse 9. Now, again, we've seen it before. 
since the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, there's been persecution. But as Christianity has spread across the world, there have always been safe havens like the United States of America, where thank God we can worship in freedom and in peace and not be harassed. But it seems that as the return of Jesus and those end time events get closer, there won't be a safe place anymore to be a Christian. He said, you're going to be hated by all nations for my namesake. And so there is coming a time where to be a Christian, as it is already in some places in the world, is going to be very costly and many will be martyred. Number five uh, is massive apostasy. That means turning away from the faith. In verse 10, we read about this, that as all of these things heat up in the world, many people who say they are Christians are going to turn away from Christ. And they're going to turn their back on the church. And instead of standing strong against persecution and against deception, they're going to turn from the truth And betray even the church. And then last, number six, Jesus mentions this sign of increasing wickedness. He uses in verse 12 that word lawlessness. uh, An increase, it seems, of perversion and crime and terrorism like the world has never seen. To the point that law enforcement can't restrain it. Governments can't contain it. Mass chaos ensues. Now, that's an encouraging thought for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Woo! But Jesus tells us in verse 13 and 14, there's hope in all of this. Because he indicates here, there's an end to all of that chaos and trouble in the world. And there's A lot of reason for us to have joy and hope in this time. Look at verse 13 again. He says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. I think what that means is that God is going to ensure that we have all the strength necessary, all the grace necessary to withstand all the way to the end. When these things start coming down, we're going to stand firm. We'll be saved to the end. Verse 14 Uh, says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Pastor Craig, this is what we pray for. And we have God's assurance here that we're going to continue to spread the gospel. And here's what we know. Wherever we we preach the gospel in all the nations of the world, as Bibles are translated, missionaries are sent, the gospel is preached to those who have never heard about Jesus. We know people are saved and many of them are saved and churches are planted and the witness of Christ will continue all the way up until that Point. And so, here in January of 2023, we live between Jesus' first coming, which we celebrated at Christmas, and his second coming, which we look forward to. And so, what do we do for now? Well, for now, we live in an age of grace where the door of salvation is open and the church of Jesus Christ is taking the gospel to the nations, and many are being saved. And listen, these are challenging times 
for sure. But these are also exciting times as we watch the Lord work. And here's what I find. We don't understand all that we see going on. And and, and the wickedness and evil that we see in the world makes us sick. Sometimes we just feel like giving up on it and walling ourselves in as a church. But we can't do that. Here's what we do as Christians. Every day, we keep our eyes on King Jesus, who has a plan for it all. And we get back up every day, and we, we get busy doing the King's business. And we look forward in our hearts to that day when Jesus returns, and Jesus defeats sin and Satan, and Jesus sets up his rule here on the earth, and Jesus restores all that sin has messed up. And we look forward to that day that we're going to rule and reign with him forever. And I don't know exactly when he's going to set all of those things in motion. I just know that we are one week closer to it than we were last Sunday. And we know that God's prophetic clock is ticking. And so in the meantime, what do we do as Christians? What do we do as the church? As things get worse and worse and worse before he takes us out of this world, what do we do? Can I tell you this morning, we can't just huddle up and and hold on and wait out the clock. Like Like a basketball player on the winning side as the last seconds tick down, they just slowly dribble and wait until the whistle blows. We can't do that as Christians. We have work to do. And the clock is ticking. This is no time for us to sit around worrying and complaining about what's going on in the world. Not when you know what we know. And so I want to end it like this today. And then we'll pick back up next week. That this is not a time to worry and and fret and huddle up and do nothing and wait out the clock. This is a time for seriousness about discipling our children to be radically sold out to Jesus. Knowing what we know, we've got to be more serious about how we're raising these kids. Listen, knowing what's coming, that our kids and our grandkids are likely to live through prior to the second coming of Christ. Listen, we better be raising up some champions for Jesus. We can't just sit around and do the bare essentials. We've got to go overboard in training them and teaching them the Word of God. It makes our kids' ministry, all of our next-gen ministry, so much more important. What we do at home as we teach our kids how to live for Jesus, listen, their faith is going to have to be stronger than yours. With all the deception they're going to be faced with and, and all the evil that they're going to see. So this is a time to be serious about discipling our children. Next, this is a time for our church to become more focused than ever and more intentional than ever. There is no time to waste. And then this is a time for us to be more generous than ever with the gospel. 
Now's the time that, that we ought to, every one of us, be witnesses for Christ, telling people who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And this is a time to reach out and offer people the remedy for the pain and the hurt that is caused by sin. Think about all that's going on in the world around us and all the ways that people hurt themselves and hurt others. Uh, This is a time to reach out with the message of Jesus and and offer people this remedy that Jesus heals and Jesus saves and and Jesus restores and and Jesus is what the world needs. Uh, And then here's a long one. Are you ready? This is a time to deny yourself and take up the cross of Jesus in every business transaction, every class at school, every friendship in your life, at every game, every conversation with your spouse, every meal with your family. This is not the time to turn inward and be selfish and self-absorbed and forget about everybody else. No, now is the time for us to do it the Jesus way. Deny yourself. Take up the cross of Jesus. Follow him as you go into every situation in your life because it matters now more than ever how we make a difference for him and those around us. And then last, this is a time to live every day with an attitude of hope and joy because even though we don't know exactly what the future holds, we don't know all the details all the timelines, we know, say it with me, we know who holds the future. And so we ought to be the most joyful people around, knowing what we know about God's plan and and what's in store and our job right now and all the people we can make a difference in their lives. Uh, We ought to be the most hopeful, the most joyful, because we know that Jesus holds the future. More next week. Let's stand together. And uh, can we just thank the Lord for his plan and the hope that gives us? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, even though uh, this is sometimes hard to understand, thank you for what you've made very clear. And that is we don't have to live in a state of anxiety and confusion. always wondering what's going to happen next. Instead, we can rest in your hand knowing you have a plan for all of this. And Jesus, we look forward to the day when you return. Until then, we just ask that you help us to be faithful Help us to be busy. Help us with our priorities, Lord. We, I, can become so selfish. But God, help me to lift up my eyes and see what's coming and get to work. Lord, I pray for that person who may be lost in their sins today. The time is limited. And so I pray, Lord, that before it's too late, 
Even today, they would call on you for salvation. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and share. And if you want a pastor to follow up with you regarding today's message, reach out to us at severe.church slash follow up. Thanks again for joining us on the First Baptist Church Severeville podcast.